You weren't aware of it? That's good news. Spring manifested yesterday. You didn't notice it? All right. Uh, come right on in. You can sit anywhere you like and feel comfortable. There's a good amount of seats left. We have uh, Nancy Wilson, who's back from traveling the United States of America for the last five years, uh, has now an expert on U.S. topography. Interview her sometime about the great country we live in, but she's here and she's going to pray for us this morning. So, Nancy, lead us on. Grac gracious God, thank you for bringing us here together to take advantage of this wonderful opportunity to be illuminated by this um, very talented faith teacher. Help us to learn and understand and use this knowledge that we gain in your service. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, thank you. Uh, so this is gonna be a beautiful day. Uh, we have this class I'm very excited about. Um, I really do wish that you could all come with me and study with me uh, through the week as I think about and pray about and study about what we're going to study because you would learn a lot more if you went through the process with me. So I just want to say it's a joy for me personally to go through this material and I wish that I could share more, but as you know... Uh, time flits in this class, and so we always wind up running short. But today we have a lot to learn, and I'm excited about it. Plus, afterwards, I get to go out to Taggart's with all of these really cool young people. <laughs> and I heard that today's topic is the fact that the good-looking guy here at the end, <laughs> Nick, had his first date last night. <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> Oh, no, okay, a first date. <laughs> a first date with another young lady. So, I mean, how could that be better? What a better day could this be? All right, so uh, this morning, oh, we are talking about the passion of Jesus and angels. Now, how many of you saw the movie, The Passion? Okay. Now, that was the passion lasered in on basically the last days of Jesus' life, and particularly. Um, we will work on more seating. If you could just slide in somewhere, and Richard will help you. Uh, Brian, could you help? John and Brian, could you please help Richard get a few more chairs up? So sorry. No problem. At least you're not breaking through the ceiling. <laughs> Which, if you recall, happened on one occasion. Yeah. Now, um, what am I talking about? So the, the movie focused right on the last sufferings. I want you to look at this holistically over Jesus' whole life. And I want to show you how angels were involved in the many phases of Jesus' life, both fallen angels and good angels. And I think some of the things that you learned today are going to be quite shocking. Um, so having said that, does anyone have any burning questions from the handout of last week? I would never dare to embarrass a crowd by asking how many actually read it. But there may have been some remaining burning question about temptation in Jesus and angels. And I wanted to just have an opportunity for you to ask anything that you may want to. Yes. Now, when I was putting this together, I just knew, and I was so excited because I thought, finally, this is going to be something Dr. Smith can really relate to. What page are you looking at? Page seven. Yes. Now, this is a section from my doctoral dissertation, and uh, he's looking at uh, the third paragraph down from a social science perspective, Isaacs. Um, and I'm sorry for those of you who just walked in, you don't have this handout, um, but this is last week's. 
And Dr. Smith has raised a question about a citation I put in here by this Dr. Isaacs, who studied uh, people that uh, exhibited states of what we would call inhabitation, or some people call possession by evil spirits. I don't use the term possession because it connotes ownership, and demons can never own a human being. They can squat, they can live inside of a human, they can inhabit, but they can't possess. You have to allow them to do what they Come on in. Brian and John, pardon me. You have to allow it to happen, and it is usually almost always a progressive slide into this state of consciousness, which I'm going to show you today even happened to Judas. Okay, you're going to see this process, Dr. Smith, in the life of Judas. However, this fellow, from a psychological, social science uh, point of view, said, look, there's nothing in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual Number 3, which is the Bible that psychologists and psychiatrists and all mental health authorities use to get a diagnosis of what a state of consciousness is. I have a psychiatrist friend, and he, told, and he was one of the authors of the articles. He's helped put it together. And he told me, in 100 years, people are going to look back on this and kind of smile at it because he said it's just the beginning even though that's all we have and it's better than nothing, that's all we have right now to diagnose states of consciousness. And so psychiatrists use it, but they understand it's tentative. So this Isaacs guy looked in the DSM for anything that could resemble what he now labeled as a possessive states disorder. And so what he's trying to do is establish that as a diagnosis that fits in with the kinds of diagnoses that you would find in the DSM number three. Is it making sense to you what I'm saying? This is what his enterprise was. So that means you have to then create a profile of symptomatology that is stable and repeatable and shows up regularly inside of people. And when those criteria are met, when that profile is fleshed out, then Isaacs wants to say, look, this is the possessive states disorder. Possessive states disorder. Now, what does he say, Dr. Smith, that the criteria would be? And I'm looking at the fourth line down, if you could find with me. First, the person must have reported the experience of being controlled by something or someone or something other than the self along with a resultant loss of control in one of more of the areas of thinking, anger, profanity, impulsiveness, and physical functioning. Has anyone ever lost their temper to such a degree that you just went wild and ballistic and then woke up 45 seconds later and like... Oh, not 45 seconds. Well, I'm whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Smith. Uh, okay, w whatever. Has this happened to you? And it almost feels like you got taken over by something, right? All right, well, now, this is much more serious. I'm just trying to give you an analogy to kind of help you understand what he's talking about. A loss of a sense of self, like I'm not in control of myself, like something's taken me over. But it's not like you're completely out of it. You're still kind of aware, but you're also feeling, wow, I'm not really in control. Second, and these all have to be together. They have to be linked up. So the next time, Dr. Smith, you start exhibiting whatever it is that you do and how long it takes you, your five-minute tantrum out with your animals on the farm or whatever. Yes? Uh, I, I don't think I've ever gone to 45 seconds, but I can remember a uh, relative of mine. I won't tell it because I don't want don't to embarrass this poor guy, but whoops, they're halfway. Uh, but at any rate, uh, his girl, he had just spent two days and about 250 bucks to get somebody to get his TV straight, the brand new TV. Yeah. And so he told her not to touch any of these buttons, only this one and this one. He came home and it was all screwed up. And his wife, who is a minister's daughter, could not believe the tirade that came out of him over the next two or three what, minutes. Out of his mouth. Yes. I would think that right there he was close. Well, there's an old saying, it's enough to make a preacher swear. Has anyone ever heard this saying? <laughs> 
So, yes. Now, the thing is, when that kind of stuff happens, you know, Isaac would say, like, don't jump to the conclusion that the person's possessed because you have to have all three of these criteria linked together. Yes? Okay, brilliant. So, again, though, these, this sense of loss of self and being out of control and almost feeling somebody else is in control is a common phenomenon that most humans have experienced. But you also must have these others. Second, the person must have reported experiences of a fluctuating sense of self from emptiness to elation, which corresponded not to external circumstances, but to whether the person felt in control or not in control of himself or herself. So this is like <coughs> a fluctuating sense of self and going from elation to absolute emptiness, to total emptiness. What does this sound like if you use... It sounds like bipolar phenomenon, okay? So now Isaacs wants to link up all three of these. You've got a bipolar fluctuation, up and down type of ph phenomenon going on, plus distinct periods of time in which you feel, the person feels that they are uh, out of control of themselves, and something else is in control. And then third, persons who were diagnosed as possessed must have reported one or more five of five phenomenons, and that one of, of which had to be present to confirm the diagnosis of possession. The person must have reported visions of apparitions or heard coherent voices or both together that had a real not a dreamlike quality. So, therefore, number one of the third cluster, hearing what? Voices, Voices or seeing Dream. some form of an apparition, a vision of something that's, like, communicating to you. Now, if you got crazy with this, you could, con you could call Moses possessed because he had an apparition, right? He talked to a bush. Now, honestly, if you, if you rolled up into uh, a psychiatrist's office uh, in the 21st century and said, uh, Doc, you wouldn't believe what happened last week, uh, dude. I, I, I chatted with a bush, and the bush was on fire, and it spoke back to me, and it turned out to be God was in the bush. Come on, seriously, what would a modern psychiatrist say? Put him behind bars. Yeah, well, padded cell, or they would suggest maybe that this kind of medication has proven helpful to reduce uh, the uh, sort of delusional hallucinatory states that you apparently have fallen, your, fallen into, right? Right? I mean, as a judge? I'm trying to digest everything you're saying, and I guess the last category you're talking about is what would distinguish... Oh, yeah, well, th you know, that, that's certainly chemically induced, and, 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 you know, it's so complicated. There might be demonic entities attached to that, tempting them to take those chemicals and to even exacerbate an already uh, fluctuating sense of self. You could see that happening, correct? So it's, it's not necessarily either or. Somebody had their hand up. No? Okay, then number two. Um... Voices or apparitions. The person experienced trances that exhibited the presence of more than one personality, sometimes accompanied by variations of tonality in the voice or the ability to speak in a previously unknown language. What does that sound like? Speaking in tongues. Uh, yes, it could be uh, speaking in tongues, but it can also be like uh, the great novel and movie Sybil. What is that diagnosis? Multiple personality diagnosis, MPD, which is also in the DSM now as a diagnosis. Bipolarism, uh, uh, the, uh, the notion of multiple personalities, that's a diagnosis that you can go to the DSM and find it. So now the person is saying what? It, it, to be possessed or inhabited, you've got to be hearing voices or seeing visions Accompanied with what? Uh, fluctuating uh, sense of personality, tone of voice. 
it seems like another person is using that person to manifest through them. This is all making sense? He's linking up this whole diagnosis. Uh, The person experienced and responded with revulsion to prayer, religious objects, the name of Jesus, and attempted to or destroyed religious objects. You've probably watched enough supernatural thrillers by now to know that that's almost always a part of every Hollywood movie about demonic entities, right? Like the priest almost always classically holds up what? The crucifix, and that almost always results in what? The personage that is purportedly inhabited writhing or running away, and then the priest touches, you know, and then the, the, the human screams. Yes? To me, John, when I read this yesterday, the, the only difference from the bipolar, that schizophrenia, that sort of thing, is this tremendous avulsion to religious things. Because, to religious things. Is that not true, or is that, I just... Well, uh, not being an expert on schizophrenia, uh, but having li- worked in a mental institution, I say worked, For two years, Hawthorndon State Hospital in uh, Northfield, Walton Hills. Uh, I was uh, at that time studying psychology at Kent State University. This was my internship. For two years, I worked with schizophrenics. Uh, They put me on the ward, believe it or not, as the muscle. (laughs) Because there were four nurses who lived in a room with, a, they, it was all sealed off, a cage with wire mesh and double-plated glass. That's where they stayed the entire shift. I was the one that walked out among the masses and chatted them up and tried to keep the peace. So there were people there, one, one of my best friends on the unit thought he was John the Baptizer. He told me this repeatedly every day. And we got along famously because there were times at that point in my life that I thought I was Jesus. <laughs> it's just a joke. <clears throat> no, actually, we got along great. I would just talk to him. He would pour all this stuff. He was John the Baptizer. So it's a, what did we call this? Megalo- megalomania and delusions of grandeur. So lots of them were very religious. I can't remember any of them being particularly repelled by anything that was of God. Now, I want to ask you, why did you start out that comment? I don't know anything about schizophrenia. I bet there's nobody else here that knows about I mean, like, that's like... That you spent two years with. Because schizophrenia is a state of consciousness that the brightest and the best have just labored Brain science is in its infancy. We all are aware of this, right? We're just starting to find out the complexity of the human brain and how chemicals and this and that cause different states of consciousness. That's what I want to say. I, I can't comment on that. What I can say is, is that he's saying that to get the possessive states disorder, you can't just have one of these phenomena. They almost always cohere together in a profile. Or what would, what would a medical person, a doctor say? When it's not the profile, it's a cluster or what? A cluster? A, a cluster of phenomenon together. A doctor would say, okay, then, then now we can make this diagnosis. Uh, is there anything else? The person reported some type of paranormal phenomenon such as poltergeist. What is that, by the way? Poltergeist. It's a movie. Uh, <clears throat> uh, they're back. You remember? Poltergeist is spiritual activity that causes physical manifestations like stuff flying around the room or lights blinking off and on, stuff that can't be accounted for in normal, natural explanations. Poltergeist, telepathy, the ability for one person to truly read another person's thoughts and mind. Levitation or unusual strength. Uh, Those of you who ever saw The Exorcist, uh, Richard Beatty took all of those symptomatologies and condensed them into one person, but everything that he reported in the book was uh, exhibited or displayed in in the course of five exorcisms that the Roman Catholic diocese pronounced 
with their imprimatur as true exorcisms. So the, what he did was put all the symptomatology together, but everything had been exhibited at one point or another. So you remember the little girl, she's possessed by these demonic entities, but she has like this enormous strength, and they have to tie her down to the bed and all that. He's saying that that's another phenomenon. And then the last, the person affected others in a paranormal manner, such as stench, coldness, and the sense of an alien presence or the loss of human quality. So there would be, this person would create these feelings in other people, like I'm in the presence of an alien or something feels very weird. I bet everybody in this room has been with somebody in a social context or in some other context that you would say gave you the willies. Right? <laughs> it's, it, it's really a bummer when it happens in an elevator. <laughs> but now, now, just because somebody gives you the willies doesn't mean you can say, wow, that person's possessed. But if they give you the willies and all of these other uh, symptomatologies are together, uh, Isaacs concludes what? That's, that's a coherent... Uh, explanation of certain phenomenon that we exhibit in uh, under observation of human beings that fits perfectly with the pattern and profile that is described for us where? Where? In the scriptures. Yes. So, you know, that's the coolest thing, I think, when s sacred literature and science do what? Cohere. That's the best. Yes. I got one more question, then I'll be done. Uh, Some place in here, I don't know where it was, there was a certain demon, and Christ told him not to go there, to leave that kind alone. No, he didn't say not leave that kind alone. The disciples came to Jesus because he had already sent them out on this mission and gave them exousia, authority messianic power he imparted it to the disciples and said go out and do what do what I do I'm giving you the power to do what I do heal teach cast out demons well they got to one that was living in a child and they couldn't cast it out so they went to the master and said we can't do it so the master cast the demon out and then they came and said, how come it, now this is the key thing, how come it didn't work? And we know there's no it, right? Because it's not, you don't get like this box of thing called spiritual power that you use however you want, like in the Star Wars. It's not, it didn't work, it's what? We, we didn't somehow figure out how to allow you to live through us correctly in this situation, and so therefore, nothing cool happened. And the master said, what? This kind, and the Greek word that he uses here is ginos, from which we get what, science students? A genus is a class of what? In the taxonomy of uh, science, right? Of plants and everything, a, a genus is a class. So the master said this kind of demonic entity doesn't go out except by prayer, prayer and, and some texts say fasting. But what's it, what does Jesus mean? that there are therefore classifications of demonic entities and level, relative levels of strength. This is very easy to understand by analogy. Would you agree that some human beings are inherently smarter than others? So Einstein and me. <laughs> We're talking different levels, right? I mean, go get the, the first paper that Einstein published in 1905. Go take it out of the library and read it. You'll get into the first two sentences and you'll feel like you're on LSD. It's, it's just all hieroglyphics, numbers, and everything, and it makes sense in its beauty, and it, it changed the world. It's elegant. I, I can't read it in its original. 
So <clears throat> angels are the same way. Uh, on the angelic realm, there are some of them that have inherently greater power than others. So if you have an angel that's inherently greater and more powerful than another angel, and it goes bad... Can you think of a, a, a genius, a human genius that went bad? Megala. Uh, Joseph Megala. He was a genius. And he used his, in, his intellect, his power, his training, his formidable personality to do evil with it. When I was in Israel, I actually had a tour of the uh, Holocaust Museum there by a woman named Martha Wise. And she knew Joseph Mengele. She sat on Joseph Mengele's lap. She escaped uh, the last days uh, of the war, and she said schlepped her way back to Czechoslovakia on foot as a 12-year-old girl. And she told, I said, is it true what they say about Mengele? And you know, she said, oh, he was uh, just radiantly charming, very good-looking, compelling personality. And he would have the kids come and sit on his lap, and he'd talk to them right as they're on their way into the uh, ovens. She knew this guy. So there is an example. So just imagine an angelic personality that is like, you know, inf you know not infinitely, much greater intelligent than humans. If it goes bad, then it's going to be able to do uh, a lot more evil. And so the master in this case said, yes, when you encounter these... Uh, higher up uh, demonic entities, it, it may take more time to get them out. All right, now, I'm happy next week to talk more about this document so you can bring it up. But let's get on for today's uh, topic. Um, I am going to do the middle one. I'm not going to do it in linear fashion. Uh, the handout in right in the middle says inhabitation. Do you see that? I'm going to start there because I want to show you something that isn't really talked about, I don't think, sufficiently enough. So you need to go to John 13. And I'm, I'll do the reading today just because of time, uh, at least on this one. 13, 1 through 3, Gospel of John. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. So the first information that we now have about the angels during the sufferings of Jesus, his passion, was what? He's going to a Passover dinner with his 12 closest friends, and what is going on in the supernatural realm? One of his friends has been approached, tempted, uh, negotiated with on an ongoing basis by the prince of darkness himself. Judas is, is in a conversation with Satan and it has been installed and placed into Judas's heart as a hypothetical, you could do what? Satan said to him, you could do what? You could, you could. Yes, maybe it was framed up. And of course, if you ever want to watch this thesis played out in its best form, watch Franco Zeffirelli's uh, "The um, Jesus of Nazareth," and that's the interpretation he gives that Satan turned Judas's head into a pretzel and made him think that if he turn Jesus over to the authorities, the interview would take place and they would actually see who Jesus was and they would then accept him and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and everybody would all work together. So they used Judas as a pawn to find out where Jesus is and get him arrested. But the text doesn't tell you all that. That's a possibility. It just tells you what? Satan has done what? He has put into the heart and the mind of Judas of some form of giving Jesus over. Wow. Now, keep going. 
Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God, so he got up from the meal. And what does he do in this context? This is the master for you. He, he took his clothes off and he put a towel around himself and he does what? Washes everybody's feet, including... He washes the feet of the guy who's being uh, in an ongoing conversation with an angel that's going to lead to Jesus' demise. Uh, what does that tell you about the master? Now, keep going and let's go down uh, a little bit further. Uh, he's absolutely confident in his authority and he also, as John says, Jesus knows. It's all, this is all under God's control. God's in control here, so Jesus is rightly related to God, and doesn't matter what Satan is going to do. It's a beautiful insight. Now, go down to uh, verse 21, and I'm going to read this because I think it's beautiful literature, and it's powerful the way John describes this. Ready? 1321. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit. And he testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. Now, if one of us would have been there, we probably would have said to the master, oh, you shouldn't be troubled. In fact, the Bible says that you should always be peaceful and happy. Rejoice in the Lord always, Jesus. Right? Okay. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know what he meant. They're flabbergasted. One of, the, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's that? Does that mean Jesus loved him more than the others? No, that means that in John's mind, he was just so blown away that Jesus loved him that that's how he came to look at himself. I'm somebody that Jesus loves. <laughs> that's the greatest thing ever. So he's reclining next to him. Actually, he's leaning with his head on Jesus' chest. Simon Peter mentioned to this disciple, can you just see this? Can you see these guys at the table? How do you, how do you men- motion to somebody at a table? <laughs> so they do the little eye signals, and Peter says... Um, leaning back against Jesus, and in the Greek it says, putting his head on his chest, which would freak out a lot of people in America today if they saw this scene. The master reclining on John's, or John reclining on the master's chest. Jesus said, it's the one to whom I will give the piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Akiriot, son of Simon. And as soon as Judas took the bread, what happened? Satan entered into him. So this is the final stage, the final moment of a long process that Judas has been negotiated with, tempted, talked to, seduced by, deceived. He's taken him through this whole process. And now, right at the end, when he gives him the little piece of um, matzo ball with um, Jewish spice and goo on it, he gives it to him. As soon as he takes it, what happens? He becomes inhabited. I don't want to say possessed because I don't want you to think that Judas lost his mind. He just now, Satan has full control over him. Now, read what follows. The master looks at Judas and says, what you're about to do, do quickly. Who's he talking to? Is he talking to Judas or is he talking to Satan? Or is he talking to both of them? Jesus told him, uh, but no one at the meal understood why Jesus had said to this, this to him. Since Jesus had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling them to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. So 
this supernatural phenomenon is going on right in their midst, and the disciples are what? They're clueless that a massive supernatural phenomenon has just occurred. They're, they're like drunk. They, they have had four glasses of Passover wine. So yeah, cut them some slack. Now watch how beautiful John does this. Verse 30. As soon as G- Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Now that's good literature. He sets that up and lets you know what? That Judas, when he walked out that door, went into the darkness. And the light is where? At that little room where all the disciples are still clustered and clinging onto the master. Yes, beautiful literature. Powerful spiritual truth, yes. Well, now, uh, do you have insight on this? Because they didn't know what form that betrayal, if, if he was the one in charge of the money, maybe it just meant he was going to misspend the money. They didn't understand that the crucifixion was coming. Well, I know that. All right, so it could have been a misunderstanding of the nature of the betrayal. Yes, now, I... This is brilliant that a lawyer would bring this up. (laughs) No, I'm serious. Wait. I want you to go over to Acts chapter 2 now. This is is awesome. And this only can be fully appreciated in a Presbyterian church. (laughs) And I mean it. Um... Now, I'm looking at Acts 2. I'm looking at verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, you just had two paradoxical and opposite constructs handed to you. Uh, Who's in charge of the whole scenario? God. God had this set purpose. And it is being accomplished in human history. But Peter also says what? That the people that actually did the deed are? They're wicked. Do you see it? Now you could say, well, why does God consider people wicked if they did what God concluded should be done? That's not fair. And what's the answer, Presbyterians? Thank you. Well, there's free will involved with predestination. But I, Jesus, in the great Christian prayer in John 17, from his own lips, he, he begins to almost negotiate with God the Father at the beginning of that. Those that you sent to me, except Thank you. Hey, by the way, if you're not Presbyterian, just don't pay attention to this section, okay? <laughs> then you can sleep tonight. Go ahead. Well, I, I, that's my point. It, it isn't just Acts that tells us that. Peter is the Oh, yes. That's, that's why. Jesus, Jesus says it. Yes. It's just hours after Judas left the Last Supper meeting and Jesus is praying in the garden. Exactly. In agony. Now, how are we going to resolve this? When, or what are we utilize? No, the, the issue is, this is called theodicy. The, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. If you want to type it into Google today and read about it, theodicy is how do you justify the ways of an all-sovereign God in the face of the fact that evil exists and people make bad choices? How do you balance those two uh, paradoxical notions? That God's totally in control and yet a lot of bad stuff happens and it's not God's uh, doing. 
The bo- uh, do we have an answer? Okay, question. Judas was inhabited by, by an angel. Ju- Judas was inhabited by an angel. And the angel in turn controlled him to do this. What would inspired him to do, yes. Now, that being said, if a person is inspired by an angel who has more power than a human. What is Judas's ultimate fate, given the fact that he allowed an angel to control him? And by the way, I want you to understand this about the... In- No, no, inhabited means that you've allowed an evil entity to live inside of you. Hey, by the way, what's the New Testament definition of a Christian? Paul says in Acts, uh, in Romans, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, then they don't belong to Christ. So what's the definition of a New Testament Christian? Somebody that has the spirit of Jesus living inside of them. Now, those of you who are honest Christians... You've got an all-powerful God. You've got all the fullness of deity living inside of you. You've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living inside of you. They have all the power that exists. Do you feel controlled and dominated, or do you feel that you still have ability to make choices? And does it actually feel sometimes like you would feel like you would wish God would take more control? Like a lot more control? (laughs) Like, come on, do something here. Quit making me work so hard. All right, now I'm going to make an analogy. That, that's kind of the way it is on the other side in the possessive state's disorder or inhabitation. You can have an entity living inside of you, an angel, a demon, whatever you want to call it, but it doesn't mean that you have to do everything that it says. You understand? It's still a negotiation. And if you uh, want to really get into this, drill into Jeffrey Dahmer, because did you know he became a Christian? And he, did you know that? And he talks about the possessive states disorder and how he progressively allowed that these demonic entities to take over his mind, but that he was aware of what he was doing. He was giving into them. So this is what... Now, the solution is become a Presbyterian. Because <laughs> then you're supposed to believe two things at the same time and not worry about it. God is totally sovereign. And nothing happens under unless the sovereign will of God says it will happen. At the same time, human beings are responsible. They have volitional abilities. And therefore, when they misuse them, it's right and meet for God to say about them, you're wicked, or you did wicked, or you did good. Isn't that happy? No? Go ahead. Yes, yes. Yes, somebody had to do. Somebody had to do. But simultaneously, a Presbyterian would say somebody chose to do it. Thank you. See how good it is to be a Presbyterian, <laughs> Doctor. Uh, then help us, please. Yes, he's saying it, it doesn't really address, it doesn't really resolve it when you have an all-sovereign God who, who, who prepares from the beginning of eternity the notion that Jesus is going to be crucified, which is what the New Testament says, Right? crucified from the foundations of the world, then human history plays out, and uh, the, the question is, is, are we all puppets? Did Judas have volitional choice? Did the Romans have a choice? Or were they just players in a prescripted role that they had no volitional choice and therefore no responsibility and therefore no moral um, evaluation of their actions? Yes. God and God's foreknowledge, even though uh, God knows what choices that we're going to make. So that's the way some people try to resolve this. Yes, sir. Another way that Presbyterians get around this question a little bit, and other, other faiths do the same thing, is we omit the will and co-omit the will. Okay. Some things God causes to happen. Directly. God allows, allows to happen. 
No, it isn't, and especially when you get to the crucifixion, because this isn't something that God just said, well, I wasn't counting on this happening, but now that you've chosen to do it, <laughs> I'll work around it. I'll figure out a supernatural way to change this game. No, the, the Bible is very clear what God planned it. So, you know what? I'm going to give you a, a heartbreaking secret. We will not solve this issue today. Uh, it is a scriptural mystery how sovereignty and volitional responsibility of humans interplay, and I, I can guarantee you that the scriptures teach both. That's what I can tell you. How you resolve it and work it out is, if you're a Presbyterian, you're going to work it out one way. If you're a Methodist, you'll work it out the wrong way. I mean, the... <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm serious. I'm just kidding. And the real issue that I want you to see here, though, is, uh, and I, if you sometime you want to have a class on it, I'd be glad to teach a class on it. But in, what's pertinent about this is um, J Judas went through a number of stages to get to this place. And in this document I gave you last week, I show you on pages five and six the five stages that the New Testament says that people go through when demonic entities work on them. Now I'm going to show you another one. Let's, let's counterpoint this. I want you now to go to Matthew 16. You say, Judas, Judas, what happened to you? Okay, now I'm going back one under deception. This is angels and the suffering of Jesus. Um, Matthew 16. Uh, some of these aren't really known that well. They're not known nearly well enough. So in 1617, uh, Simon Peter has just confessed, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And what does the master say in response to G uh, Peter's confession of faith? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by humans, but by my Father in heaven. So he's now saying what? How did Peter come to the conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah? A spirit revealed it to him. What spirit? Uh, yes, but he doesn't say Holy Spirit in this passage. He says the Father. So the Father, if you want to work it out, working in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, illuminated Peter's mind, and he crossed that threshold as he was wondering, 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 who's Jesus? Who is this Jesus? He's watching all this stuff, and all of a sudden now he crosses that magical, mystical line, and he says what? This guy is the Christ. He's the Messiah, really. It was like a huge stage. Hold on one second. All right, well, go ahead. That's fine. Uh, that's, there's a case that could be made that the disciples had no idea what Jesus is really doing and they were pretty stunned and would have liked to have seen him adopt a more what? Davidic role? A king like David? Sure. Now, watch this. Later on, uh, starting at verse 21, another phenomenon happens. I'm going to read this to you for the beauty of the literature again. From that time on, Matthew 16, 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and what? Suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. 
Peter took him aside. Now, let's use our imagination here. They're up in Caesarea. They're around a fire. The master has just been confessed to be the Messiah by Peter. Jesus then turns this uh, moment of confession into a teaching tutorial and says, yes, you're right. I am the Messiah. Now, let me explain to you what my messiahship is going to be like. We're going to go up to Jerusalem and they're going to crown me as the king of Israel and everyone's going to fall down and worship me and we're going to have peace and then we're going to kick the Romans out. No. We're going to go up to Jerusalem and they're going to spit on me, beat me, kill me. I'm going to suffer many things. They're going to put me to death and on the third day, God will make it all right again because I'll get raised from the dead. And the disciples look at each other and say, and Peter, the big leader, the one who has just blossomed, who's just confessed Jesus to be the Christ, he pulls, he gets Jesus off to the side, away from the fire and away from the rest of the other guys, and he says what? There's no way this is going to happen. We're not, that's not going to happen. What does he say? He, he rebuked him. So what does that mean? When you rebuke somebody. <laughs> you, you, you've got this totally wrong, Jesus. Or I, I can't think of him. How do you think Peter would have said it? Jesus. <laughs> Seriously. This is the, what would he have said? This is a, we were just talking about rock, rocks. This is the most boneheaded, boulder-headed idea I have ever heard. Jesus says, never, or Peter said, never. This will never happen to you. And what does the master do? Verse 23, get be." Get behind me. Does he say Peter? No, he says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the things of God but the things of men. What is, what's happening here? Peter had just had a supernatural spirit reveal to him what? The truth that Jesus is the Christ and then sometime later that evening, he's, what's happening to him? He's actually allowing Satan to do what? To, to deceive him to such an extent that he becomes a conduit for Satan's lie. That means that Satan is using Peter to do what to Jesus? Tempt him. And now... When, when Jesus responds, he doesn't respond back to Peter. Who does he respond to? He speaks directly to Satan. Now, this, would this freak you out or, or what? If you were sitting at a campsite with Jesus and you're blathering on about the way you think sh- things should be, like we do when we pray, and the master turned to you and said, um, Get behind me, Satan, because your mind is on the things of this world and not on the things of God. What what would that do to you? (laughs) I mean, would that be shocking or what? On the same evening, to be told, God revealed this cosmic truth to you and you're also a mouthpiece for Satan. Wow. Wow. (laughs) first of all when I read the Bible it's like looking in a mirror so I'll be glad to cut him slack provided I get some number two it's not for me to cut slack or not I'm reading a story in the Bible that Peter's closest friend by Jesus gets said to what to him what it's right there Peter says what 
you're letting Satan speak through you. I'm not judging Peter. I'm just saying this is an amazing thing. You read in the Bible that angels were functioning in the ministry of Jesus in such a way that they show up sometimes directly and sometimes they show up how? Through the very closest friends of Jesus. Wow. Judas? But not just Judas. Now, Peter too. So there must have been like a lot of swirling activity going on in Jesus' cohort, supernatural all the time. God's revealing things to them. Uh, Bad angels are saying things to them. And this is all swirly, 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 and the master's in the middle of it, and he's got to keep his eyes where? Right on God and fulfill his his calling. The rest of them are confused, yes. That's a great question, and that's what these, these stories are supposed to elicit within us. Not that we stand in judgment on the players, Judas or Peter, but that we realize that, look, if that's what was going on in the first century, and now we have all of us here, and we're all Christians, I mean, what does that tell you? That uh, God can work in and through any one of us, and what else is true? That evil... Angels could theoretically also work through any one of us. If, it, if Satan could work through Peter, he could work through me, he could work through anyone. So this, Dustin, must make us do what? Fall on our faces and say, I, I don't want to become the uh, agency by which a demonic entity works. I want only the Spirit of God to work in and through me. Yes, now you were going to say. Yes. I think that's what we do do. Uh, and again, it's like that Lewisian thing. You know, you step into Narnia, and Narnia is when you live as if the supernatural world is true, and you live in that spirit world, and, and you let Christ be who he really is. And then we step back into the, the natural world, the flesh world, and don't want any of these things to be true. Uh, most human beings, when they find out that, the, according to the Christian faith, that the universe is populated with all kinds of angels and supernatural entities, and that they have an influence on the human race, and some of them mean us harm. I mean, most people, when they first hear this, they say, what? This sounds like X-Files. This sounds like um, a weird cult. That, that in fact, what... It's embedded in the Christian story. This is what we're hearing. So we have to take, learn, all of us, to take these things and, and say, well, what does it mean for us? And what, we, what have we learned today? That uh, angels are very active. They were very active in Jesus' ministry, not just directly tempting him, but then, remember Matthew said, then he left him for a season and the Greek really means for a prime time. And what's the most prime time that Satan could have hit Jesus when he's just at the end of the Passover dinner out in the garden and he's like starting to really get overwhelmed and his disciples are basically of the opinion that what? You, you shouldn't do this. You, you're crazy. You don't need to do this. That would have been a big temptation. Now, before you leave, I just want to take two more minutes and show you the capper, as far as I'm concerned. Yes, go ahead. That's where we're going right now. That's where we're going right now. So find in your handout the one that's called impartation. That's Luke twenty-two forty-three. It's the fifth one over. Impartation. Um, and he, he, 
he doesn't really say, it doesn't really say that he's having a direct conflict with Satan in the garden, although in the Passion of the Christ, it did show it that way. When we get to Luke 22, 43, um, actually 41, he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. All right, so here he is. He's got to make this decision. What's the decision that he has to make? And maybe this will help you on your uh, balance here. Jesus is a true human. The scriptures have foretold this. He's come this far. He's like Frodo right at the edge of the fire with the ring, and all he has to do is throw it in. The master's come right here, and what's God asking him to do? Give up his life. He makes the same decision that he made in the wilderness for 40 days. Yes, he does. Yes, I'm going to be a human, and I'm going to do it like a human. I wish I didn't have to do it. He, he's honest, but he says, I will do this. Now, it's been foretold, but the question is, did he really have a choice? Or is he a puppet that had to do this? What do you think? He had a choice. He had a choice. If you make him into a puppet, if he had no choice in it, then it's going to make your love for Jesus go like what? because you're going to say, well, thanks, but, like, you didn't really have a choice. Like a puppet that would say every day to you when you leave your room, bye, I love you. So if Jesus didn't have a choice and that's all he was doing, then, but if he really had a choice, that means he willfully did what? Chose to take your sins unto, your, unto yourself and die for you. Yes, sir. It, it does. You can see all the little hints. Like, what did God tell uh, Adam that would, the earth would bring forth unto himself? Thorns and thistles. What kind of a crown did they make for Jesus? Thorns and thistles. These are all things that are woven into the text that actually happen that the Bible doesn't really blatantly always point out. But he's undergoing all of the punishment for us. Now, he's agonizing in prayer, and what does an angel do? It imparts strength to him. Why, since he's filled with God, does an angel have to come and impart additional strength to him? Because he's human. Which means what? If the Son of God, who is the best ever at letting God control him, needs impartated strength given to him from an angel, from an external source, what is it that you could consider yourself possibly a candidate for as you walk through this veil of tears? Angels could help you. Now, to be on the safe side, don't talk to them. <laughs> unless they talk to you. And if they do talk to you, then keep it short. Number two, if you need their help, did Jesus say, I'd like to have an angel right now? Who's he actually talking to? God. So talk to God, focus on God, and if God benevolently says, in this case, I'm going to help you through an angel, then you'll be blessed. It'll be a happy day. But don't seek after the angels, because if you do, then you could get into trouble. Is this making sense? Now, keep reading in the passage. The angel actually anticipates, the angel knows that Jesus needs this imparted strength because the next verse tells us what? That the master was so stressed out that he was beginning to sweat blood. I put down there in the footnote that this is an actually known medical condition, hematidrosis. The master is this close to stroking out. I mean, seriously disabled. So here's the cool thing. He's starting to slide into that seriously disabled state. He's pouring blood, and it's like God anticipates it, and just before it really gets bad, the angel comes and does what? 
imparts strength to him. So I think if you follow my thesis through the whole course, whatever angels do for Jesus, they're also going to do for his second body, and that's us, which means that God knows your condition, and at the very last minute sometimes, maybe, but just before you feel like you're totally done and you absolutely can't do any more on your own and you're going to absolutely fail, you can rest assured God's doing what? Watching you and will mediate strength and protection and whatever it is that you need by whatever means God deems to be the best on that occasion. And it very well may be an angelic entity. And if it happens to you, don't freak out, just be happy. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes, you can. If you look up all the passages, you'll be able to determine very clearly. First of all, they always center on Jesus. Second, they never violate the scriptures. They never draw attention unto themselves. They always give glory to God. There's a lot of criteria and profiling. You can ask them directly, and who is Jesus according to you? Is he the one that died on the cross and rose again? Is he the only sacrifice uh, <clears throat> for our sins? You can ask angels questions. You can test them. The Bible says to do it. Don't just roll over and say, wow, an angel. The Bible says what about uh, Satan? He can masquerade as an angel of light. So you do have to probe and, and dig. Yes? Uh, that demon, demon Rosas business, the hormone levels are so high that it, the capillaries yes. dilate. Yes. So then start bleeding out of the capillaries. Thank you. That's, I, I, I should have just had you teach that section. He's, God supernaturally intervened because he was just about ready to die before he even got on the cross. It's an expression of the master's love. Okay, you guys have to go to church, so I'm sorry we ran a little late. Father, I thank you for um, Jesus above all and his love for each one of us that he would do what he did for us. And thank you for the things that we're learning about angels and we pray that you would protect each one of us uh, from the influence of bad angels and make us not seeking after good angels but seeking after you, God. And if you choose to help us in uh, our way through angels, we thank you for all of the great ways that you do things for us. So protect us this day, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, bye-bye. Have a nice day.